0: Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Thinking Out Loud. Today, I am joined by pastor and professor, author, and advocate, Jay Augustine. Jay has a book that comes out next week, February 8th, titled, Called to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity, and Inclusion. Jay is trained as a lawyer and a pastor, and he combines both of those callings and presents what is kind of a culmination of both areas of work in Called to Reconciliation. Jay was kind enough to take some time to sit down with me and discuss his work. I'm confident you'll enjoy this conversation and we have some ways for you to win a free copy of the book as well. So check out Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter for the post from February 1st, that's today, for listening when this goes live. Like that post, follow Thinking Out Loud NJ Augustine and tag a friend in the comments. Each comment slash tag will count as a new entry. Those are musts to be entered and we have a few bonus ways to enter as well. Share any episode of Thinking Out Loud on social media. Make sure that you tag Thinking Out Loud or me personally so that it can be counted. Fill out the listener survey that's in the show notes of this episode, as well as the bio of Twitter and Instagram. And finally, you can become a patron for as little as $2 per month by heading over to patreon.com thinkingoutloudpod, and you'll get an additional three entries for becoming a patron, the listener survey, and tagging us on social media. When you share an episode, those each will be one bonus entry. The winner will be announced on February 8th, the day that Jay Augustine's book releases. So head over to social media and enter to win a copy of Jay's book. Then head over to jayaugustine.com to learn more about Jay and over to Baker Publishing to pre-order your copy of the book. Okay, coming next is my conversation with Jay. Stick around after for an update on the upcoming season of Thinking Out Loud. All right, I'm excited to be here with Jay Augustine, author of uh, the forthcoming book Called to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity, and Inclusion. Jay, thanks for joining me today.
1: Dave, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be with you. Uh,
0: so Jay, you're you're a man uh, of many hats, um, a pastor, lawyer, professor, an advocate. Uh, we could probably spend... Uh, hours talking about how each one kind of came to be um but in less than several hours uh, can you tell us um when did life start to take this shape for you
1: um you know it has it has multiple roots that finally i think started to come together right the the roots of the tree are obviously underground and you don't always see the formation there but eventually when something starts to sprout it uh, it kind of has cohesion and starts to make sense um, I grew up in the church and I grew up with a household or in a household, rather, where faith was most certainly emphasized. Work hard. Say your prayers. Believe to he who much is given, much shall be required. You do Your part, the good Lord will do God's part. Uh, so that has always been an underlying principle of who I am. Um, I'm an African-American male raised in the deep south in New Orleans with all of the the wonderful majesty that New Orleans has. It's still in the deep south. And at the time I grew up in the 1970s. Uh, race was still very, very real. It still is very real today in 2021 or headed into 2022. Uh, but the narrative then uh, uh, was exceptionally real. Uh, and if you think about it, I was born in '71, just a few years after uh, obviously passage of the uh, Civil Rights Act of '64, Voting Rights Act of 1965. We still were in the midst of school desegregation. Uh, and in fact, as I fast forward to to my first calling, which I'm going to address as a lawyer, some of my work was in desegregating. Uh, schools and in mm-hmm. handling cases that were filed before I was born. So as a as a product of the South, my first calling was to the law uh, mm-hmm. to really try to 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 make sure equal means equal. Uh, uh, what is what is written on paper is actually materialized in people's lives. So um, I went to Tulane University Law School down in New Orleans and uh, and served a year as a clerk at the Louisiana Supreme Court before entering practice. Uh, and then becoming a law professor as well. Uh, In the midst of that journey, again, the church has always been very foundational for me. Uh, So in the midst of that journey, uh, I had some personal strife, some personal discord, which now I just really recognize God needed to get my attention because everything was going a little bit too well, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) God's got to humble you before he can take you in a direction in which he wants you to go. Um, So um, I accepted the calling to ministry. And uh, and that meant for me the, the old expression is that a calling to preach is also a calling to prepare. Uh-huh. Uh, so that meant earning a master of divinity at United Theological Seminary up in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, it meant a fellowship for further study at Princeton Theological Seminary, and ultimately culminating with the doctor of ministry at Duke Divinity School. So uh-huh. I am I am happy to be now in full time pastoral ministry. Uh, I never left the teaching hat behind. I loved that. I taught for years at Southern University Law Center when I was pastoring in New Orleans. Uh, and now I teach also at a North Carolina Central University in Durham.
0: All right, awesome. And yeah, so you're in North Carolina there now?
1: And... I'm in Durham now, absolutely, yeah. I pastored in New Orleans at Historic St. James AME Church in the downtown area of the city. A historic congregation founded in 1844, my denomination's first congregation in the Deep South. I was blessed to serve there until 2019 and I was transferred to Durham, where I accepted the pastoral appointment, or accepted the pastoral charge, I should say, at Saint Joseph AME Church in Durham.
0: Well, those calls, I, I'm I'm glad God put them on your life. That uh, that's a lot of schooling. That's a lot of work to to get through that, and uh, and none of those are are light callings either. Um, to to step into those, I'm glad glad God called you to that, and called <laughs> me to interview you about that. <laughs> uh, so so this book. Uh, called to reconciliation, it seems kind of like a, a, a culmination of all those different hats that you've been called to, that this isn't just your work about your work in law. It's not just about your work with the church, but really uh, taking both of those and, and putting them together. Would you agree that this is kind of putting all of that together?
1: Absolutely. So it is it is interdisciplinary, uh, if you will, and it is a, a culmination of, uh, for me, several years in, uh, in 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 at least two disciplines. Right. So the book focuses on law in some regards and looking at uh, uh, the course of affirmative action in the United States, the Supreme Court cases that were aimed at affirmative action, uh, uh, which is really a form of diversity, which is a form of reconciliation. And I'm going to try my best to to tie that together. Uh, it also looks at uh, uh, my journey. Uh, it's not biographical. It's not autobiographical, I should say, but when I say it looks at my journey, it's my lens, my my centric okay. lens, and looking at a journey of people coming together, uh, rebuking the lines of racism, rebuking the lines of classism, and recognizing that, uh, um, you know, as Acts 10, 34 says, uh, God really is no uh, respecter of persons, right? We all are, we all are human beings. We all are, are, have that commonality. So that which unites us is far greater than anything that can divide us. So the book really does connect uh, both scripture as well as law in uh, uh, a narrative of civil rights and looking at how people can come together around principles of diversity and inclusion.
0: Um, yeah, I want to I jump into to kind of all of those categories. I think especially uh, in today's world, uh, defining terms is important because uh, language is often weaponized. and. Uh, Words are used and that means one thing to you, one thing to somebody else. And now we're not even we're talking past each other. But before we get into that, the subtitle of the book is how the church can model justice, uh, can model justice, diversity and inclusion. Uh, and I want to to get to how, like I said, I want to get to what we mean by each of those words in a minute. But first, what do you see as the, the potential impact if the church leads well in those areas?
1: The church should be an exemplar for society at large. Uh, Society is incredibly fractured along political lines, along ethnic lines, uh, along lines that, as you mentioned, language is used to to weaponize uh, uh, and to vilify. uh, And there are smoke screens that are created just because we thrive on lines of division, right? Um, So the church really can be an exemplar uh, for reconciliation and for diversity. By going back, I think to to its apostolic origins, to really where the church began, uh, as we le- as we let out uh, a fulfill the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus left to us. When when I talk about diversity, I really use it in a twofold context. Uh, there is cognitive diversity, and there is also identity diversity. So both of those can lead keenly to problem solving. And we have got so many problems in society right now. We need the church to lead in that regard. So when one thinks about cognitive diversity, you think, for example, about the way you think, which is largely tied to academic training. So a lawyer may process information one way. An accountant may process information another way. A linguist may process information still a third way. You put those three individuals at one table and ask them to solve a problem. They are much, much, much more likely to reach a solution, a viable solution, much more quickly than if you had a homogeneous group of three people who thought exactly the same way. The same applies for identity diversity. When you look at uh, what a culture of belonging really should be, identity diversity addresses how we self-identify, how society, how socially we are identified. So that may have to do with uh, a black man, a white man, it may have to do with a Mexican woman, it may have to do with a straight man, it may have to do with a gay man, it may have to do with any form of self-identification, but again how you are socially identified uh, determines your social experiences And that will help filter information. So when you bring a diverse group of people together, it really, really helps again in addressing social issues and solving problems. So the church can model that when you think about where we came from in terms of the apostles, for example, the different backgrounds they came from, yet they all came together to do what I think is the greatest thing ever and live out the ministry of what we now call the church. Uh, uh, Those are just examples of how if the church can go back to her origins of acceptance of the of the great story in Acts there that I referenced Acts 10 where Peter was obviously a devout Jew you know the has has the dream and the vision get up kill and eat and Peter's like there's no way I'm a, I'm a, are you kidding me God there's no way I'm going to eat that pork I'm a Jew right how can you call unclean that which I have made clean right wow I now realize God is no respecter of person so all of these divisions we have uh, are, are, are man made they're synthetic. Uh, they're not things that are uh, um, that are that are, that are of social importance. Mm-hmm. so um, so that's how the church can model, I think, for society.
0: Yeah, and what a testimony uh, what a testimony it was when the church got that right. Uh, we can look at uh, the early church getting that right. and here we are uh, talking one of our common bonds being we are followers of Christ because of the testimony of the early church. And you and I have uh, we have different, uh, identity markers that, but yet we are united over our our bond in Christ. Uh, and then we look; we can look throughout history too and see moments, um, moments where the church has gotten it right and the testimony that that has been. And I, I think uh, anyone who is really been alive, you don't even have to be paying that much attention. You recognize that there is uh, polarization, there is uh, animosity. Uh, is kind of in the air right now, and so uh, a moment uh, to for many to be frustrated, but I think a moment to be hopeful that if the church can can get this right, then uh, what a beautiful testimony to the world that would be.
1: So I and and you really hit on the on the head a nail that I think is very prevalent or very present in the book. Um, uh, the book is is political in that it certainly talks about partisan politics. Uh, I don't attempt to advocate for one party over the other in our two-party system in America. However, I think because things have been so incredibly (laughs) fractured because of what has manifest as a result of the Make America Great Again narrative and the attempt to return to quote-unquote brighter days, right? I'm saying that in the most most hypocritical context, Uh but the, the attempt to return to those brighter days I think has driven so many wedges throughout society that even when you look, and the book really chronicles this, um, uh, in looking at the way our evangelical brothers and sisters have been so closely wedded uh, uh, to one particular party and in such opposition of the other political party, going back to uh, a post-civil rights movement after King's assassination, uh, when, when Richard Nixon campaigned on a law and order promise in the dog whistle language that was used then, the seeds that Nixon planted, those seeds started to bear fruit uh, when you think about the 1980 presidential election when Jimmy Carter, an evangelical, was defeated by Ronald Reagan with the famous quote, uh, uh, I, you can't endorse me, but I can endorse you. Uh, and you think about the the, the fusion uh, that came into existence then, that, that fusion uh, largely tied around opposition Roe v. Wade, uh, uh, that fusion really snowballed. and became became something that I think was unbearable. And, and it was fr- a Frankenstein, if you will, when we got Make America Great Again, because it just vilified everybody <laughs> it was it was to me it was the most offensive narrative so since things have become that incredibly bad i think uh, i think there's great optimism and great opportunity to bring folks back together and that is one of the contexts in which i use the term reconciliation
0: mm. so i when we talk about the that political narrative and where where we find ourselves now it, i don't know um and i've said many times i don't know that uh donald trump specifically that the, the the make America great again movement uh a little bit broader created took something that out of thin air created something new i think uh it was kind of uh a culmination, maybe a hastening of a direction that we were going, which again this is uh maybe a little simplistic, but one of the markers of that movement i think uh is a defining uh, defining yourself by your opponent. We are not that um whatever that may be. And uh, that really seems to be the, the driving force in politics today. When you talk about reconciliation, and and the even harkening back to uh, the early church, the, it was not uh, def- a definition in the negative. This is what we are against, or this is who we aren't. Uh, even with Peter's, inc- his vision of including the Gentiles, um, it was a, this is what we are for. This is uh, who we are rather than who we aren't. And, uh, it it feels like maybe that's what one of the things the church has to, the early church has to offer us is a return to uh, a definition of in the positive. This is who we are. This is what we are for.
1: Absolutely. I I could not have said it any better. And thank you for saying it that way. Um, the, the early church did not play the identity politics that the make America great again narrative, uh, branded. Uh, 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 that it exploited, that have existed for some time, and that it capitalized upon in the most, uh, to me, uh, a politically opportunist, opportunistic way. Um, when I use the term reconciliation in the book, I unpack it in a threefold context, which really goes to the comment you made earlier about, you know, despite our geographic differences, despite, for example, our denominational differences, despite, for example, our ethnic differences, we are united in service to the church. We are united as, as brothers in Christ. So when I use the term reconciliation, first, I unpack it from Paul's letters as salvific reconciliation, right? So through the church, through Jesus, if you will, we all are saved. We all have have received atonement through the suffering of Christ. When you think about social reconciliation, it is we are also equals because of christ right because christ died for all that means we all are equal to one another within the body of christ and consequently and our theology should be in society at large and then if all really means all when you think about the civil rights movement and when you think about the fact that ministers are the ones that led that movement those who would obviously have been most familiar with the uh with the egalitarian concepts that paul Uh, uh, pronounces in the New Testament, uh, uh, if if we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, ministers led us into civil reconciliation, right? So civil reconciliation really was prophetic leadership in speaking truth to institutions of power, where equal really does mean equal and all people deserve equal treatment. So again, it's no it's no accident that, uh, that Dr. King and other ministers were those who were the leaders of the civil rights movement. I use that as an exemplar, I use the civil rights movement as an exemplar of, of prophetic leadership and of civil reconciliation, but the book also connects it as an example in saying prophetic leadership rises based on circumstances. Prophets are created based on circumstances. The 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 discord that we had over the pandemic, the discord we had over the twin pandemic of racism in twenty twenty created another generation of prophetic leaders. And and let the truth be known, um the, the church in the interim. Uh, The church went to sleep. The church did a Rip Van Winkle. And I can be critical of the church's activism there because I'm an active member of the church. And when I say did a Rip Van Winkle, it was the it was the tranquility of no drama, Barack Obama. Right. I'm I'm an African-American. I was as happy as I could be to see him serve. I think he served very well. But at the same time, uh, I think so many people felt a sense of we have arrived. We don't have anything to worry about anymore. Uh, uh, Racism is gone. Uh, I don't know. Those guys are coming around with those funny looking red hats on and say, make America great again. Racism isn't quite gone yet. Right. So um, uh, so civil reconciliation, again, I think manifest with with the Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, as a as a protest ethic, much like the civil rights movement in responding to. Uh, the harsh social conditions of the day and demanding equality and equal treatment. So um, uh, reconciliation is not so much uh, uh, bringing people together that have not been together. Reconciliation is recognizing that it's a multifaceted term that should exist for diversity, for equity and inclusion to bring people to a culture of belonging.
0: In our our polarized state, I feel like when we talk about reconciliation, the more abstract we talk about it, the easier it is to agree uh, for all people to agree Uh, for. I think most of humans to agree that yes, we should be reconciled Um, for Christians, especially that, you know, it's impossible to, to read Paul uh, in first Corinthians and to, to walk away saying, no, we shouldn't be reconciled. You know, we, that is the ministry that we've been given is one of reconciliation. And so when we talk about it in the salvific sense, I think we're all on board. Um, But as we get more concrete and um, less theoretical about our our reconciliation. That's where we start to, uh, there starts to get some, be some rub on, well, how is this going to play out? How is this going to work? Uh, we've talked about politics already. We, we've mentioned make America great again. we talk about the black lives matter movement and for I'll say a lot of people and by a lot of people, I think I mean a lot of white evangelical people. Uh, th- those terms are, let's take black lives matter for, for example, uh, I'm putting, I'll put on my, uh, a theoretical red hat here, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh th- that when, when you talk about black lives matter, yes, I, I affirm that black lives matter, uh, Period. I believe that to be true, but the organization is uh, a Marxist organization. They're anti-family. They're and so then that becomes a hurdle in reconciliation. Is I I want to appeal to this movement, but when I appeal to this movement, that brings up all these whether they're legitimate or not. They become hurdles to our actual reconciling, and so um, and I think we see that all over. Uh, You know, we we had. Um, the the movement seemed to be gaining positive traction in 2020, you know, uh, after uh, some horrific events that woke some people up. Um, now it feels like we're in the, the backlash of that with uh, CRT, critical race theory, kind of uh, being the boogeyman of all things bad. Um, and I, we see that in other areas, not just in race. I think abortion.
1: So, so let, me, let me just, if you don't yeah. mind, I just want to interrupt just to emphasize a point you made earlier on how language is used as a weapon, right? Language yeah. is weaponized oftentimes. I am a lawyer. I studied critical race theory in law school, and I can assure you, I can assure you as an academic discipline that I spent a semester of my life grappling with, it is not the boogeyman that has been right. created to be a wedge issue by yeah. experienced politicians, The same way, for example, that Karl Rove, and I forget what year it was, but a midterm election, uh, or was it George Bush's, George W. Bush's re-election, but Karl Rove came with a philosophy of of God, guns, and gays, right, and and put um, uh, anti-gay marriage uh, 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 amendments on the ballots in several uh, uh, several states, other several southern states in particular, because he wanted to prompt a particular demographic for turnout. At the time, I was like, "Where is this coming from? Where is this vilification coming from? Why is this relevant mm-hmm. to anything?" After the election was over, I saw the results and I saw who was energized to turn out and who didn't. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, so it was it was it was genius, right? It was a boy genius. But my point being critical race theory is an example of something now as I see the news and you've got people riled up and I'm like, that is not at all what we're talking about here, but it's a wedge issue that's simply been created. I just wanted to emphasize that because you raised the point about language being weaponized earlier.
0: No, I I appreciate that because I think when I said that earlier, uh, critical race theory was in the back of my mind as one of those things. And um, I saw even uh, just recently as we record, um, uh, governor DeSantis down in Florida introduced some anti-CRT law. And it's like in, in Florida, like we think <laughs> CRT is a, is a problem in Florida. Um, but it is, it, it seems clear that it is, uh, uh, it is one of those words that, and phrases that is being weaponized to stoke fears and to, to rally a base. Um, And and it it becomes no no different,
1: mind you, no different, mind you, than the vilification as part of the "Make America Great Again" narrative since we since we referenced that. And let me be clear: it is clearly associated with the political candidacy and the administration of Donald Trump. But that that narrative or that movement is much much larger than any one individual. Right? He capitalized on things that were in existence, fears that were there, and used them for political gain. Uh, but no different than in Trump's campaign, the vilification he did for uh, uh, Mexicans, uh, 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 threats to obviously locking children, separating children from their families, migrant children from their families at the border. But, but his comments about Mexicans being drug dealers and et cetera, um, uh, th- that there have been so many attempts to use identity politics and vilify that that we've got to be smarter than that. And to me, the reconciliation narrative says, let's do the hard work and let's go a little deeper. So we're not just led by sound bites, but we really are trying to digest what exists to make our society better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so that, how, how do we do that? I guess is the question when it's so raw. Uh, I think uh, as we talk right now too, there, there's the CRT debate, but there's, uh, the Supreme court is uh, looking at laws that uh, have impact on Roe v. Wade. And I think uh, abortion has been used certainly as an identity politic issue on the right, but on the left as well, that uh, when you get to the most extreme on either side, there's really, there aren't coherent arguments being made. It's just, um, you know, every baby needs to be born, the the woman and the situation be damned, they don't need help, they just need to have the baby. And then on the other side, it's it, you would talk to someone and it's almost like every pregnancy should be terminated. <laughs> and like it just has become these identity markers rather than coherent uh, arguments and good faith arguments even. So as polar- polarization heats up, how how do we step into that hard work when it seems uh, so fraught to, to even step into uh, and to have a good faith uh, partner on the other side of the reconciliation?
1: Yeah, so you use, I think, the operative term, the other side, right? And with that, the image that pops in my mind is that of a coin. On opposite sides of a coin, we all are human beings, so we all are the coin. But on opposite sides of the coin, there is a class that has engaged in oppression. There is another class that has been oppressed, Hmm. Uh, meaning there is a dominant class, there is a subservient class, and that's been consistent with the narrative in America, whether it be political, whether it be ethnic, whether it be racial, whatever the case may be. I think the hard work of reconciliation comes in on both sides, on either side, I guess, of the coin. On one side, there has got to be forgiveness for previous transgressions. There's got to be a willingness to let it go, to really do the hard, the very difficult work to let it go. And as hard as it is in some regards to think about forgiveness because of the atrocities of the past, as a Christian, the exemplar of forgiveness I hold out is Jesus, right? <laughs> so so hardly no one has done the work of forgiveness like Christ, but we all should attempt to be Christ-like and engage in forgiveness for those who have been pushed to the margins or periphery uh, 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 because of social class, because of ethnicity and what have you. On the opposite side of that coin, on the other side of the coin is the hard work of repentance or the hard work of changing a willingness to change a behavior that presumably has been profitable or or fortuitous. Otherwise, the behavior would not have been uh, reciprocated or repeated. I shouldn't say reciprocated. The behavior would not have been repeated uh, uh, for so many years. So so to really find middle ground and to make America a better place, uh, 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 it, it requires forgiveness on the part of those who have been marginalized and victimized. And it really requires a change in behavior. Uh, on behalf of those who have been uh, who have been doing the victimization, or leading in the victimization, if you will.
0: Yeah. So this, um, when we talk about America and the church, we're talking about broad, big institutions. Uh, do you see this primarily as institutional work, or is this uh, more personal, relational work? Are there components to each?
1: I think there are components to each. So I think we we as part of identity diversity, um, we we self-identify, uh, those of us who are in the church, we self-identify oftentimes with denominations. Um, uh, I was I was talking to someone the other day about the formation of my denomination, for example, uh, African Methodism, and I emphasized it was it was started independently because of polity, not because of differences in theology. The same 39 Articles of Religion that were in existence back then are the same 39 Articles of Religion that that we adopted, hook, line, and sinker, if you will. Now, right? So I think there is there is institutional allegiance that individuals have, institutional allegiance. So I think in that regard, the church as in denominations or the church as in autonomous congregations should lead as institutions or many institutions should lead in helping bring people together because individuals will have allegiance and trust in the respective institutions. I also think it is it is up to the individuals to lead. Because social circumstances, when you think about prophetic leadership, again, social circumstances uh, 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 cause leaders to be formed and cause leaders to rise to the challenge of their times. Um, uh, When you think about the life and times, the history of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when you think about the life and times of the history of Martin King, Um, Neither of them, I think, ended up in a way that was foreseeable, but circumstances, social circumstances uh, catapulted them in the directions that their ministries uh, uh, led. So uh, so I think it's a combination of both. But 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 at the at a minimum, we've got to be willing to recognize that a culture of belonging says everyone is welcome at the table. An appreciation of that says that cognitive diversity and identity diversity mean we can come together and solve social problems much more quickly than we can if we worked in silos. Um, uh, some of the social problems that exist, uh, uh, we heard for four years there's no such thing as global warming. Uh, we've heard, take it off the governmental websites, it's a hoax, it was made up by someone, but yet today we see tornadoes coming out of the blue and and, and destroying, uh, almost destroying an entire town in Mayfield, Kentucky. Uh, we've seen flooding. I grew up in New Orleans. If anybody knows flooding, I know flooding. Uh-huh. Right? But we've seen flooding now in New York City. Are you kidding me? <laughs> flooding in New York City, right? So clearly global warming is an issue and it's an issue because insurance rates are going to rise and that's going to hurt just about everybody so if we can get a diverse cadre at the table to solve any to work on solving issues like that we're we're creating a culture of belonging where we respect both cognitive and identity diversity. When we look at food scarcity, when we look at poverty, when we look at uh, the lack of affordable housing, when we look at gentrification in communities where people can no longer afford to live, those are major, major social issues that require people coming together along diverse lines, not just homogeneous lines, but diverse lines to come together in a culture of belonging and solve those problems. That's where the church can lead. And back to the point you made or the question you raised, both individually as well as institutionally, because depending upon the problem, and there's so many problems out there, it will take both in order to help solve them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe, I think it it probably scales up better than, uh, to borrow from a uh, another political term, better than it trickles down. Uh, hmm. That it starts even... Uh, I think back to the civil rights uh, movement, and I'm certainly out of my depth there w- when talking to you, but I think we see that the, the movement uh, started and the change started at an an individual level at people who were stepping in making a change that society kind of uh, Wagged the dog there that it wasn't government that said oh we see that we've done some things wrong let's change the legislation and then people got on board it was a movement that started and moved its way up the the institutional ladder uh to where changes were made and i think i think that perhaps we have given uh government too much power uh, if just in our minds that we think the changes have to start there so that they can trickle down when I think really the the major movements that we've seen uh, throughout history and American history have started with the people first and then the government catches on later. And so uh, as the church, as the gathering of people, I think if our hearts are Towards reconciliation, and we're doing that work. Then that necessarily will influence uh, the the greater institutions in our country.
1: And, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I will use as an example, just sort of to uh, to illustrate your point. Um, I am I am blessed to call uh, William Barber a friend. He's a fraternity brother. He's somebody I think more highly of than I can I can put mm-hmm. into words. Um, I was not in North Carolina when the moral movement began. I was down in Louisiana doing a little bit of law uh, and serving in pastoral ministry. Uh, but since coming here and learning really the the, the the genesis, the infancy, the embryonic state of when uh, the Moral Monday movement began, I used to read about it. I get the emails about it. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's crazy. What's going on in North Carolina? Wow. That's crazy. I'm down in Louisiana. But to really understand how here's one person. Who got together with a couple of other people, much in the mindset of a Dr. King in saying that this is morally wrong because the biblical truth says this, the constitution and the laws say the other, or say say something similar, but that's not what's going on in practice, right? right? So theoretically we have one thing, but the actual application is something different. It's going to take prophetic resistance and it's going to take the individuals coming together through the institution of the church to really effectuate change. And when you look at where we are now, uh, the progress that has been made as a result of that sort of prophetic resistance, to your point, starting with the individual and trickling up, for lack of a better term, it is it is really phenomenal. But at the heart of that is a respect for everyone to have a place at the table. That's the core of what reconciliation is. That's the core of a culture of belonging. And that's really the core of, of inclusion when you think about uh, the greatness of America and of, of the diversity that we have.
0: Yeah. So as, as we talk about this, I mean, my, this is very much like my heartbeat, uh, is to, for reconciliation, to be a peacemaker, to step into, uh, difficult conversations and, um, and to, to seek unity, to seek reconciliation to some level I've experienced that, that is, uh, living intention is not easy. Uh, but for reconciliation to, to be meaningful and to happen, we have to be okay with stepping into tension. And in today's world, that is very much a choice that many of us have the opportunity to make or not to make that we can, uh, I can live in homogeneous, um, circles, whether that is intellectually, ethnically, um, whatever I can, you know, be in, in silos, um, informationally. So to step out of that is a, an intentional choice that I have to make, but it's un, an uncomfortable one. Uh, do you have thoughts on how we can kind of pattern ourselves, how we can practice that difficult work of of being more comfortable living in tension? Because I think uh, on the path to reconciliation, there is a lot of tension.
1: Absolutely. And I, I agree 110% with that. What I will share with you, uh, 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 I believe Obviously, there are different doctrinal views on the church. There are different doctrinal theologies on how the church lives in society. Some say uh, that the church has no place in politics. And I'm equating politics with the tension that you raise, right? Um, um, I say just the opposite. I say the church was born to address politics. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the ministry of Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus was an ethnically oppressed Jew who lived, in, uh, 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 the Roman, lived under the governance, I should say, of the Roman Empire, uh, where people were subjugated, uh, 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 where people were treated as second-class citizens. And part of his ministry, after preparing himself, obviously, through fasting, through praying, part of his ministry, as told to us in the fourth chapter of Luke, shows he came to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he gave in what we would say his home church, right? He went back to the synagogue where he where he'd studied earlier in life, Okay. Uh, and, and he he gave a social justice oriented message, mm-hmm. saying that he was coming to address the political disparities and the and the downtroddenness of his day. Um, when you fast forward and you think about the uh, the influences of Martin King, the uh, uh, the Walter Rauschenbusch's and the other the social gospel thinkers that really influenced his thinking and consequently the politics of the civil rights movement, King wrote about the two planes of the cross, the vertical plane and the horizontal plane. And for me, that is really, really where the church is supposed to exist. That's the Uh ministry of Jesus. The vertical plane is salvific. It's to address salvation in the kingdom to come. And yes, the church absolutely is supposed to address salvation in the kingdom to come. But on the horizontal plane, the church has also got to address social injustices and, and, and so forth in the kingdom at hand. So I think we are, we are born to go into the tensions. And when you look at the biblical narrative, prophetic leadership time and time and time again says where there is tension, their religious leaders should be because we serve a God of fairness and of equity. So we're supposed to address those tensions. Mm. In our modern day, in the context in which we live now, coming up on 2022, uh, where we are looking at uh state legislatures that are that are doing unconstitutional gerrymanders uh with the anticipation of uh, of redistricting uh when we look at the legal challenges to those gerrymanders uh when we look at the um, the likely composition of the House of Representatives, when we look at the Stop the Steal legislation that's been filed in so many state legislatures uh, around the country, uh, when we look at the narrative of saying that we had an unfair election and that the election was stolen, the 2020 presidential election was stolen, we are living in a place where there is nothing but tension. And now that tension really manifests along political lines, which are tied oftentimes to racial and ethnic lines, uh, but again, if the church is to be the church, uh, 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 times may change, but circumstances really don't. The narrative is still the same, different date, but it's the same playbook. If the church is to be the church, we need prophetic leaders to step up and address those social injustices in the kingdom at hand and not just wait on salvation uh, in the kingdom to come.
0: Yeah, well we we have our work set out for us
1: uh it's tough sure. work too and it it's tough work absolutely yeah. it's tough work
0: yeah um I think you know w- y- the book uh talks about um the the apostolic church we, we've talked a little bit about it and and that uh, that scene in acts 10 where uh, Peter's eyes are open to the inclusion of the gentiles uh it it really is the rest of the book of acts is the church wrestling with that what, what does, uh, what does this whole Jesus thing mean now that it's not just for us, that there, there are Gentiles who are included. And, uh, I don't know that there's a, a neat, there is progress made in the book of Acts, but the work is not complete when, when the book of Acts is done. And, uh, we, we still have to, to live out that work. And so I'm, I'm glad that, that you, uh, not just are writing about it, but that you are living out that work. Uh, and I, I pray that, that this book, reaches the hands of those who, who, who it needs to reach. And that, uh, I think if more people can simply be stirred to, to see the, that we are called to reconciliation and to take that work seriously, then regardless of our starting points, I believe that the spirit will do a work to, uh, to bring us together to the point of the cross where, uh, where that vertical and the horizontal meet Uh, And and we are one in Christ. So, so thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. Uh, uh, We are, someone will be winning a copy of this book, but uh, if that's not you go pick up a copy of called to reconciliation.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And and Jay, uh, before, before I do let you go uh, where, if people certainly they can pick up this book, uh, wherever books can be found, but if they want to follow along with more of your work, where, where can they do that?
1: Sure. Thank you. So my website is www.jaugustine.com.
0: Awesome. I will link to that in the show notes to this episode. Thanks again, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. There it is. I love talking to Jay. I love his vision and passion for the church and the impact that the body of Christ could have if we lived out the calling of Jesus and the apostles in the area of reconciliation. Be sure to enter to win a copy and go order a copy just in case. Maybe give it to a friend. Originally, this episode was going to launch the new season of Thinking Out Loud with a theme of friends who disagree. And that season is still coming, but it's not coming next week. I wanted to take some time off, so in January, I did very little for the podcast, except for my patrons, who got a bonus episode. I have a few interviews scheduled, and we'll be talking guns, hell, systemic racism, uh, LGBTQ marriage and church inclusion. There's plenty of other episodes that could be made. I just need people to disagree with me. So if you are maybe hardcore pro-life or pro-choice, I'd love to chat because I find myself somewhere in the middle there. If you're a strict complementarian, women shouldn't have authority over a man, then let's get together and talk. Those are just a couple of ideas, but I bet there's plenty we can disagree on. So feel free to reach out and let me know what we disagree about, and those episodes should be coming in March. Until then.